Welcome to the H&E Podcast, where we seek to celebrate the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through discussions on church history, biblical spirituality, the Bible, Christian living, and theology. Shall we get started? Welcome back to the Hesed and MA podcast. I am joined with Dr. Gary Stewart, and uh, he is the author of Reforming Culture, J.W. Alexander's Christian Approach to Social Reform. Uh, Gary, it's nice to have you. Uh, we've talked a few times on the phone and corresponded lots by email, but uh, it's good to actually see you face to face. It's great to talk with you, Chance. Um, um, I'm looking forward to it. Um, so why don't you start off by just giving us a little bit who are you? Uh, where are you from? Family? Anything like that? Yeah. So I am currently a assistant professor of history at Colorado Christian University. Uh, I've uh, completed my fifth year of teaching uh, here at CCU. It, we're a small Christian liberal arts college in the, a Denver suburb, and um, I also chair the Department of Social Sciences. So at CCU, I do a lot with American history and Western uh, civilization, Western history. I also, uh, before uh, being a professor here, I was a pastor for seven years in St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada, of Calvary Baptist Church, and got my PhD from the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, in church history and historical theology. Uh, this particular book grew out of master's uh, level work that I did through Westminster Seminary uh, through their London program and was able to do a thesis uh, research project on it. And that's what sort of evolved and turned into this book. Yeah, that's great. It's been fun to read through and to edit it. And finally, seeing it in my hands, it's uh, just a labor of love on your part. And so I'm excited to uh, to get it available. Now, in, in your introduction, you actually talk about there's nothing really written on, on J.W. Alexander. Yeah, there's been a few things um, recently that have come out. Um, Jim Garrison has published a book with Reformation Heritage on J.W. Alexander's preaching and uh, his approach to pastoral ministry. There's been a few smaller things that have come out, but by and large, people are unfamiliar with J.W. Alexander. Uh, perhaps they've heard of his father, Archibald Alexander, who was the first uh, professor at Princeton Seminary. So J.W. Alexander, James Waddell Alexander, uh, was uh, the oldest son of Archibald Alexander. So not many people have, have probably heard of him, but in his day, he was widely regarded as a leading figure in the Presbyterian Church in America, with his uh, close associations with Charles Hodge and his father, and in Princeton Seminary in general. So this is probably, what, the third or fourth book that's available on him that's at least contemporary? Yeah, I'd say that's right. Yeah, I think um, uh, there was maybe a mini biography, uh, a bite-sized biography that was done on him. Jim Garrison's work on his pastoral ministry and, and preaching. This is one of the few, I think, that that is out there on J.W. Alexander. Mm. Yeah. Uh, would you mind going into like a bit more detail about who like who was J uh, W Alexander? Maybe provide uh, a sketch of of his life. Yeah, so J W Alexander again was the oldest son of Archibald Alexander, who was born in 1804 and died in 1859. 
so right before the Civil War. So his life covers uh, a large part of the early history of America uh, and, and the antebellum period right up until the Civil War. He was a pastor in Virginia. So one of his earliest pastorates was in uh, the slaveholding South, close to where his family was from. Uh, but he also pastored in Trenton, New Jersey, which was a factory town and the bustling urban center of New York City for uh, his longest um, stint in the ministry was in New York. He also was a professor at Princeton College and, and taught uh, Latin rhetoric and literature uh, there, and, and he pastored a black congregation while he was professor at Princeton, uh, and then also did a short stint at the seminary as a professor of church history and uh, church government for around, around three years at the seminary. Um, he was a close friend of Charles Hodge. He, he's not known for writing um, great works of systematic theology. His strength was as a commentator on culture, uh, commentator on American culture, and also writing books uh, that were aimed to be practically useful to the people in his day. So, so he wrote a large number of popular level works that were, were aimed to uh, reach the masses that were intended to bring Christian truth, Christian teaching uh, to a, a wide array of people in his own day. So he was very uh, learned and educated, uh, but yet his writing was mostly aimed at doing good in his own day. And he very much had a pastoral heart uh, in that. So even, even though a professor, he kept sort of going between being a professor and a pastor. Uh, his love of languages and, and learning and um, was just a, a voracious reader and, and a really sharp thinker, uh, but yet a real heart for um, the poor, a heart for those who were without gospel preaching or without the truth of the gospel. Um, so he was motivated not so much to make a legacy or a name for himself, but, but to write uh, children's books, books for immigrants, book for, books for factory workers and the working classes, um, to try to spread Christian truth uh, to, to the people at large. He, he lived during a time of great social upheaval, uh, the political divisions that would turn into the Civil War were percolating during his life. Um, he faced a divided country, the issue of slavery and, um, and race relations and immigration, uh, the condition of the poor classes. These things all weighed heavily on him. So in some ways, he lived in a time that's not completely unlike our own. We continue to face similar problems and issues in our uh, national life. And he was very much in the forefront of thinking about these things as a Christian pastor and, and trying to respond um, in ways that he felt were, were best and the most appropriate for um, doing good in the world and for spreading the kingdom of Christ. So that's, that's him in a nutshell, a, a pastor, a pastor, preacher, theologian living in multiple sections of, of uh, the United States, um, seeing things from many different perspectives. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so, so you talk about him, uh, you know, wanting to, to do good for society and uh, very focused on social issues. Well, the book is called Reforming Culture. Uh, did he preach what modern modern day uh, evangelicals would call like a social gospel? Or can you explain more what that looked like? Yeah, actually, he was an early critic of a kind of proto-social gospel. So in his own day, there were individuals, even some connected with Princeton. Uh, Stephen Colwell is probably the leading figure who was promoting a kind of social gospel, downplaying doctrine, downplaying theology, uh, promoting a kind of moralism as uh, as the the essence of true Christianity and, and to the neglect of and disregard of theological truths. He was really critical of that. So he did not preach what we would call a social gospel. He believed that what society needs is the gospel, the gospel of uh, the truth of Christ's death and resurrection, uh, the, the reality of, of, of regeneration, the experience of the new birth, uh, uh, people being discipled in the truth, people being, being uh, instructed in Christian teaching. Um, these are the things he believed would actually transform society. So he was concerned about the poor, concerned about the working classes, concerned about immigrants, concerned about slaves. But he he believed that the old gospel was what was needed and the, the old paths of preaching and teaching and discipling and catechism, these were things that, that moved him. He thought the answer was in the old the old gospel, not in any sort of new new moralism or theorizing about society or speculative uh, approaches to to the reordering or restructuring of of uh, Americans political life or or society in general he rejected that as a kind of alternative to the gospel and and, and to the true answer to social ills so he definitely would not be categorized as a adherent of the social gospel that what we think of today attached to Walter Rauschenbusch and uh, what emerged later. He was very much uh, very much a conservative in his overall views on society. He's a big fan of uh, uh, Edmund Burke and the politics of John Adams. Um, he, he was uh, he was against uh, sort of democratic populism that arose during the age of Andrew Jackson. Um, he, he didn't believe in the wisdom of the masses. You know, he was not uh, not a, a Jacksonian. Um, he was no, he was very much a conservative. He was actually on the question of slavery, uh, supported uh, a position of gradual emancipation. Mm. Uh, he believed that the the best thing to be done for uh, for slaves and factory workers and others who were in the poor, you know, immigrants in New York City, crowded in the slums. He believed that the salvation of souls is what needed to be emphasized, what needed to be aimed at, that wherever people had not encountered clearly the truths of the gospel, that that is what Christians should emphasize and focus on. Um, you know, in New York City, you had a number of European immigrants coming in who, who didn't speak English. And, and who perhaps came from Roman Catholic countries, uh, think of the, uh, the Irish um, and uh, Italians and, and others who were coming in. He was, he, for him, the answer was very clear, and it was the dissemination of biblical truth 
the instruction of the masses in the truths of the gospel. And he believed that many in his day were ignorant of those things. So to try to reform society without um, leading with and emphasizing the spreading of biblical gospel truths, he felt was, uh, was, was wrongheaded. Um, he thought it was, it was uh, superficial, mere tinkering on the edges. The, the root causes of societal ills are people's alienation from God. And without addressing that, everything else is a, is a mere um, trimming on the edges, I think is what he, he would actually say. Um, he spoke in those terms. The root problem is people's enmity against God, rebellion against God. And, and with many people living in darkness and ignorance, the answer for social ills is the light of the gospel, the light of biblical truth. So he was quite critical, actually, of social reform movements in his day that he felt did not, did not emphasize these things. He, he criticized, uh, again, the, the people who looked to politics for the solution, the, the rise of, of uh, Jacksonian democracy, you know, power to the people. Uh, the mass um, uh, riots and demonstrations that were provoked in the, the era of Andrew Jackson. He, he thought that was wrongheaded. The, the abolitionist movement he thought was wrongheaded as well because it didn't emphasize the gospel. It dealt with people's external societal circumstances. He was critical of the common school movement, those who looked as uh, to a public school movement as the, the answer for social ills, people like Horace Mann. And even he was critical of trade unionism and utopian socialism, those who looked to economic collectivism as an answer to social ills. Um, and, and my book really marches through his critique of all of these things, uh, his critique of um, where he felt these things fall short and sometimes where he even believed some of them were actually doing harm um, and they were providing false hopes, uh, Trade the trade union movement in particular. He felt that was a a false hope that that the poor working classes were being seduced by, whereas um, whereas the, the answer is found in a a relationship with Christ and and uh, appreciation for one's calling, a recognition of God's sovereignty over one's life. Um, he he felt a number of these ideologies are actually counterproductive. So he had his own approach to social reform, and, and it was one that put put Christian instruction and discipleship and teaching the spread of Christian truth to the masses uh, at, at the forefront. So uh, history tends to repeat itself. Do you see any similarities in the present day as to uh, antebellum, you know, the time that Alexander found himself? Yeah, for sure. The antebellum period was a time of amazing division. There were riots in the cities. There was social unrest. There were epidemics, plagues. <laughs> um, when when you uh, J. W. Alexander uh, left us a very unique collection of letters. He he corresponded for over forty years with a, a boyhood friend who became a fellow Presbyterian minister, a man named John Hall, and John Hall kept his letters for forty years. Um, often a, a, a letter or two a month. Um, but they were full of um, his re reflections off the cuff on, on current events, contemporary affairs, books he's reading. He'll, he'll say things like, I just read uh, uh, Dickens' new work, Nicholas Nickaby, you know, and things like that. He, he just off the cuff uh, is, is living life 
and and commenting on it. And it's these letters that really captivated me, um, because they're they're like taking a um, a, a, a mental vacation back in time, uh, taking a, a kind of journey to a foreign country of the past, and and seeing it through his eyes and and reading about things as they're unfolding. And he describes in these letters a world very much like our own, uh, divided, um, lots of um, crises throughout the course of these 40 years. And um, these books are not widely known, but they are a gem uh, to read and, and peruse. If you want to know what Antebellum America is like, read J.W. Alexander's um, 40 Years Familiar Letters is what they were published as after he died by his correspondent, John Hall. Um, anyway, yeah, so so Antebellum America is a lot like our own world. And J.W. Alexander believed that the some of these things that present themselves as the solution to social ills actually become an alternative to the gospel. Some of them uh, promote themselves as the answer to human suffering, become a a counter gospel. They become a a substitute for the real thing. Alexander was very strong on the point that if we want to change society, we need to produce a greater number of Christians in society. That's the only way. If you if you want to change society, you, you need to produce a greater number of followers of Jesus Christ. And and the church needs to remember that, needs to focus on that. As, as the children are growing up in our midst, the next generation coming after us, uh, if we want to change the world, we need to focus on that up-and-coming generation, making sure we are doing our utmost to, to produce followers of Jesus Christ. And over time, this may be not very dramatic or very exciting, <laughs> but it is the way to, to improve society. So if, if we're concerned about the state of society, we should focus on evangelism, discipleship, catechism, uh, instruction in the teachings of scripture, and, and other things that are superficial and inadequate, if not destructive. That, that's, how, that's how he saw uh, his, his situation. And I do think that some of those lessons are true for us uh, today. Uh, we can be tempted to hold up what is maybe merely helpful as something tangential. To society as the answer. We know Jesus is the answer. I mean, we, we know that the gospel and the, the Bible is the answer. You know, these, these, uh, uh, these things are the answer. And we shouldn't look elsewhere to social theorizing or, um, you know, speculative philosophies and theories about society and politics and, and so on. Uh, so that was his perspective. I think it's a helpful one for us today. Helpful reminder. Yeah, it's amazing. It's so providential as I, you know, even just hearing you talk now and looking at the, the chapters of the book, it's hard to believe you wrote this 10 years ago originally and uh, how appropriate it is uh, for 2020. You know, uh, how, what better time for this to be published than the year of COVID-19 and the riots and uh, everything else that's going on? Yeah, I, I think um, now more than ever, this, this is a message for the church. I, I do think that evangelicals are uh, losing their way on some of these things. I am hoping that this book will be a bit of a corrective to the allure and appeal of a kind of new social gospel, which is on the rise today. Uh, I think uh, Christians should be fully 
engaged in social and political um, issues, but we always have to remember what the answer is. Uh, we have, always have to remember what the uh, that the answer is found in spreading of the word of God. And we we kid ourselves if we think that we've already done that in the West. If we think today in the Western world, well, we've already spread Christian truth. There's we need to like do something else now. You know, we we've already spread the truths of the gospel. And so now we need to kind of do something more, something else. That's a big mistake. Every generation that arises is born in ignorance. They know nothing. And and we have a lot of work to do, both with those who are growing up in the church, in our families, and also those who are um, outside of outside of the church. We have a lot of work to do in the, in the West. Uh, I was uh, once a kind of political activist myself. I started out my university degree majoring in politics. I, I, I now I'm in education at a Christian liberal arts university, uh, and and I'm a big believer that the answer, um, what what we really need to invest in is the rising generation uh, that um, needs the truth of God's word, and and we have not completed that fundamental work yet, and we never do because. The, the next generation is always born in complete ignorance, and and we we need to be instructing and teaching and training uh, the believers uh, and just making disciples for those who will come after us. That's so helpful. Let's talk about you know twenty first century Christians reading. Alexander said about these uh, different areas. Uh, there may be some things in there that, as a uh, uh, Dr. Barrett said in his forward, might make me. Uh, squirmish about uh, his views on some things. How as a Christian should I, when, I, when I'm reading someone like Alexander and I might not agree with him or like his approach, uh, do we just, do we throw it all out? I, I believe you have disagreements with him. Is that right? Yeah, I think the biggest issue that, um, that people will stumble over in Alexander is his uh, comments about slavery and race. He He's, he's very interesting on this point. Uh, at times when he's living in the South, he shows sympathy for slaveholders and thinks that the abolition, abolitionist party is wrongfully abusing uh, slaveholders you know, as living in sin, living in immorality. He, um, at other times, he recognized the evil of slavery how it was attended to with all sorts of abuses, how it was um, an institution which degraded both slaves and slaveholders. And, and so he, his comments are complex on that issue. And I know that there are many comments that modern readers today would pull their hair out. How could he think that? How could, how could he say that? How could he believe that? But even so, I, I tried to just present him as he is. I started out this work just by reading through those two volumes of, of letters. And I was just fascinated by him as a pastor, as an evangelical, as a, uh, as a Christian, and wanted to just present in my book him as he is. So readers will have to make up you know, their, their own minds on certain points about what they think of how he thought. But even so, it's helpful, I think, for us to to read and engage with people from other times, people who hold the different views that that we um, don't agree with today. Um, I think that that conversation is helpful for us. It gives us perspective on our own. It 
It helps us think through our own assumptions, our own ways of speaking. Uh, now, at the same time, he seemed to be on the forefront of of speaking favorably of, of interracial marriage. Um, he, he criticized he criticized abolitionists who were concerned with slavery, but yet they still didn't view blacks as equals, and refused them, as he said, we refuse them our buses, and we we refuse them our daughters. And he was critical of of abolitionists who were so narrowly focused on the issue of slavery that they were they were almost blind to their own um, their own acts of discrimination and uh, uh, racial um, prejudice and and oppression. So it's a it's fascinating to to see him live in that time, and and there are certainly statements he makes that will make modern readers uncomfortable. Um, but at the same time, um, we, we can still be very helped by considering how he thought, even if we uh, intentionally choose to think differently. Uh, he's still very helpful. Well, before we close, is there anything else you want to say about the book? Anything at all? I'm really excited for the, for the, the thoughts and the conversations that the book will uh, hopefully promote. Um, I'm hoping it also just opens up the window in, into the 19th century uh, and also into old Princeton and hopefully becomes a vehicle that will um, encourage today's believers to, to explore and get to know some of these individuals at, at Princeton. Mm-hmm. And uh, when, when you wrote it, uh, who do you have in mind as readers? Would it be lay people? Would it be academics? Everyone? I think the book is intended um, for yeah evangelical lay people, pastors, students. Um, certainly, I have a, a number of students in mind um, as I teach American history. We try and look at the influence of Christianity on American culture and how Christians responded to cultural uh, trends. I think uh, it, it's it's written at a level that, that certainly lay people um, will be able to to understand and appreciate, and you know, hopefully pastors and scholars will also be encouraged by it. Uh, there's a whole section at the end of Alexander's uh, newspaper articles that he wrote uh, opposing trade unions. So um, those have never been published anywhere. Uh, I, I found those in the um, microfilm collection at the um, New Jersey Public Library in downtown Trenton. And um, they've never been in print before. They were newspaper articles, and I was able to uh, track them down uh, there and and uh, put those in print. So those who are interested in thinking about uh, trade unions and uh, those sorts of things might be interested uh, in as well, just for that that little nugget there, that piece that's never been put into print. So, yeah, those are some interesting things about it. Well, before we close, there's two questions I usually uh, uh, ask are there any projects that you're currently working on? Yeah, I'm currently um, uh, working to get my doctoral dissertation published. I have a contract with Oxford University Press, and I'll be submitting the manuscript here uh, in uh, in around a month's time. My dissertation focuses on uh, analyzing the American clergy's arguments for political resistance to the British during the American Revolution. So how did the clergy in America think about resisting political authorities? How did they argue for it? How did they justify it? And is that any anything new? Is that a, a deviant path or is it in line with their own theological tradition? Um, 
so that that will be a fun book coming out uh, shortly. That's great. And when's that to come out? Probably 2021, 22? I imagine it would be the end of 2021. Are you addressing like all clergy, like every denomination or specific? Yeah, because the um, sources are now so available uh, through all the, the databases, the EBO and the ECHO uh, databases, the Early American Imprints database, you can virtually look at everything printed in English up through the 1700s. And so I, um, I tried to find everything, every, every printed uh, sermon, anything that related to the, the issue of uh, political resistance and uh, sort of reformed clergy's view on government. And so there's a wide variety of voices that are allowed to speak. Uh, and you start to see the lines between those who, those who are more of the, the Tory perspective um, and those who are more of a Whig perspective. So you see that British debate trickling out into the colonies uh, also. So it, it, it doesn't, um, I try not to cherry pick any individuals. Certainly there are some that are treated like with John Witherspoon and some of those uh, leading figures, but, uh, but Anglican, Baptist, Presbyterian, yeah, I tried to look at them all and then figure out if there's any uh, correspondence between their theological orthodoxy and their political views or not. So I, I, I tried to hmm. categorize the, the, these authors as well, not, not just region or denomination, but also theologically, and, and look for patterns of, of argument that emerged. I, I argue in the work that um, the clergy who supported political resistance had um, a lot of precedent that they were drawing from uh, going back to the English Civil War the, the Puritan arguments against the Stuarts, the Glorious Revolution, um, the, the arguments against the Stuart supporters in the 1700s. Um, you know, Bonnie Prince Charlie, his uprising was 1745. And, and John Witherspoon in Scotland actually took an active role in resisting him. And so there's, there's a lot of uh, resistance activity and thought that, that uh, these clergymen are in a stream uh, of. So... Yeah. Is there anything that you're currently reading, uh, either for your studying or just personal personal reading? Yeah, one book I'm really enjoying right now is The Splendid and the Vile by Eric Larson. It's a book um, on Winston Churchill and uh, uh, a very well-researched and well-written narrative of, of, of Churchill during the, during the Battle for Britain during the, the bombing of London. Um, so I, it's the first Eric Larson book that I've, I've read, but I'm, uh, I really think that historians need to be able to, uh, to write well. I, I think that um, the study of history and the craft of doing history needs better writers, uh, better storytellers, uh, those in film, those in media, those who are, um, have theatrical gifts. I try when I teach to be a, a little theatrical at times. I, I think that storytelling is a craft, is an art, and and I do think that history writing in general needs to be less less tedious, I guess, less dry, less uh, difficult to read. I think that uh, those who are interested in history and teaching history need to work on the craft of communicating that history. 
And it certainly is a craft, whether it's writing or oral storytelling in the form of lectures. You know, I think historians can learn a lot from those who do it well, David McCullough and, uh, uh, and, and others. But that's one book I'm reading right now. Um, most of my reading tends to be revolving around the classes I'm teaching uh, each semester. So I've recently just been reading a lot about the American Revolution and uh, trying to let that inform my, my writing. No, that's great. It's, it's interesting because I got into history by reading uh, Dr. Michael Haken, who's obviously the, um, the most wonderful storyteller. And, uh, you know, when I read, when I read it, it's like, oh, you make it look so easy. <laughs> what you're doing doesn't seem very hard. And then you try to do it and you realize, oh, you're very, very good at what you do <laughs> uh, because it's readable. It, it catches you. It's a great story. And uh, that's wonderful. I appreciate that. Yeah, I think that the, the writing process for me is one of continually going over again and again with a pencil. And I, I always print out the manuscript and then go over it again. And I'm, I'm always tweaking the word here, there. And uh, it's helpful for writers to put their work aside for six months or a year and then come back to it afresh and just read it from scratch, read it cold. And and because uh, that's how that's how the audience is going to read it. And so it's helpful to uh, to re maybe even read sections out loud, uh, certain word choices, you know, some things are clunky or cumbersome. And so um, I never feel like I'm done. I just run out of time. You know, I, I'm always well aware of of the weaknesses of, of, of my work. So I, I, I don't see myself um, publishing lots of works, but those that I do, I, I hope are useful and, and enjoyable at the same time. Yeah, that's awesome. It's uh, well, like Tolkien's work. This is obviously not a history, but uh, yeah, I think he took twenty something years to write uh, the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, uh, which is seems insane, uh, but it's excellent work. And it's uh, there's a reason where we keep, we keep reading it and enjoying it. And yeah, I've seen I've seen some of Tolkien's manuscripts. They're housed in Marquette University in uh, Milwaukee. And there's um, multiple, multiple drafts. Um, even when he got the galley proofs back from the publisher, he, he's, he's making s significant edits and changes. He, he was a continuous reviser of his work. Um, and, and you can read the, the, the beginning, you know, the, the begin beginning of The Hobbit. It sounds nothing like what we have now, you know, as he first wrote it. It's a lesson for writers that it really is a craft. It really is a, 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 a work of a work of art you're doing, and language is is magical, and language is difficult at the same time. It's difficult to find the right flow, the right cadence, the right rhythm. And I, I'm not an expert writer by any means, but I certainly aspire to keep getting better. And I think that's what all writers need to need to do. Well, Gary, it's been a joy to uh, talk again with you. Uh, if those listening, if you want to get a hold of his book, it's called Reforming Culture, uh, J.W. Alexander's Christian Approach to Social Reform. It's a wonderful resource. I uh, highly recommend it. And we'll put a link in the show notes for that. And it is currently on pre-sale order, but you may uh, be too late by the time you listen to this. So uh, get his book, support him, and uh, be blessed by his labor of love uh, for the church. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Chance. Appreciate it.